This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a great privilege for me to be sitting here with none other than the Reverend Chris Green in my office in East London. In the book of Romans, we have the following verses. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal. These are words which are rarely referred to. Leadership is often referred to as a sort of a a technique. And yet we're told by Paul to lead with zeal. Now, Chris has written a book recently called The Gift, which looks at the whole subject of leadership from a biblical perspective. And uh, we'll be coming on to that later. But Chris, where are you based now? Thanks, Ben. I'm based in a place called Muswell Hill, which is Ali Pali, Alexander Uh Palace. Uh And for how long have you been there? I've been there seven years. Before that, I was... 13 years vice principal at Oak Hill College, which is just up the road uh, in a place called Southgate. I was originally from South London, um, Epsom Way. So I was almost literally born in a stable. My my folks had a a flat above some Derby stables, so almost literally above a stable. And uh, my dad died last summer, so we did some family roots stuff. And we we go back to Ballam, Clapham, Tooting Way, we go back... there to the 1740s, 1730s. So I'm, wow. I'm really a South London boy. And Whitfield, of course, born above a bar. You were born above a barn. So there you just above a barn. There you go. <laughs> it's just one <laughs> n away from Whitfield. That's the only difference between us. <laughs> <laughs> and you were at Oak Hill for a season. You were yeah a, an academic. What were you teaching there? At Oak I wasn't Hill? really an academic. There were academics uh, around the place with doctorates and things like that. I was responsible for teaching, uh, preaching, evangelism, church leadership that kind of practical ministry edge. And I was also vice principal, so I was helping to steer the ship. Mm-hmm. And you've, but you say you're not an academic. Your book's on preaching, the one that was based yeah. on the sermon, the lectures you gave in Moore College in Australia. You have published on the subject. It's not as though you're coming to it. No, but I'm, uh, that, that's kind of you to mention it, but it, I'm not doing it from an academic perspective. I'm a practitioner. I've a, been a pastor for a, about 40 years now. So this is me thinking about what I've done and working out how I do it and helping other people to understand it mm. rather than doing meticulous academic research. Mm. And for seven years, you've actually been in the, in the saddle, as it were. Yeah, back in the saddle again, which was, which was fun. We, we never said we were going to be doing a long time at Oak Hill. We, we said it was 10. We gave it 12, 13 by the end of it. But no, we're back leading a church and... We haven't got the foggiest idea what we're doing at the moment, because church does not feel like it is two years ago. But you're up on the hill there, Muswell Hill. Muswell Hill, which is one of the highest points in London, mm-hmm. and our building's one of the... I think we're about half the height of the Shard mm-hmm. when you actually map it across. Gracious so, me. From our bedroom window, I can see about a third of London, so oh. it's really rather nice. And what's the name of the church? St. James Muswell Hill. Excellent. Now, did you come from a believing family yourself? My mother was a Christian. My father wasn't. And although church wasn't brilliant, the the youth work, the kids' work was, and they had really solid teaching going the way through. And I really became a Christian through the youth ministry at our church, hmm. just gradually soaking it up. I I just gently came to the boil, I think, hmm. uh, as it were. I can remember very clearly standing at a bus stop. I was about 14. I was late home from school we were doing a rehearsal for a school play 
And I was supposed to be going on a weekend away with the younger youth. And I was late. So I said, OK, God. It was sort of tipping, de- tipping down with rain, dark, November night. And I said, OK, God, I'll become a Christian if you get me a bus. <laughs> so I, 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 I read enough stuff and I've been in enough talks. There was a lovely little uh, booklet uh, called Journey into Life by Norman Warren. And at the end, he says, here's what you do. A, B, C, D. Admit, believe, consider, do. You admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus died for you. You consider the cost of putting him first. Then you do something about it uh, and, and follow him. So I said, okay, God, that's what I'll do. And I went through that little prayer, opened my eyes, and the bus <laughs> came to a halt in front of me. It, it's the, I think ever after, God's been saying to me, okay, Chris, no, I, I did that one the first time. <laughs> you... you <laughs> <laughs> you need to learn a bit more patience thereafter. <laughs> oh, what a superb story. And then you, what did you, where did you go and study? What did you study? What did you read? Well, I was going to be a journalist, I think. Mm-hmm. Words have always been something really important to me. I edited the school magazine. I, I wrote stuff. I always knew I was going to do something to do with words, and I think I was going to do journalism. But the guy who was leading the youth group at church said, Chris, why don't you think about full-time Christian work? Never occurred to me at all. Um, in my innocence, I then went off to study theology at university, which could have flayed me alive. Mm-hmm. But in God's kindness, I went to Edinburgh and it was relatively good, solid, gospel-hearted stuff I got for four years. Oh, good. Taught me the languages, taught me history, taught me doctrine. It was it was great. And while I was there, I thought about what I was going to do, Went started the ball rolling for being ordained in the Church of England, and then carried on from there really Mm. and you were at a church there in uh, edinburgh yep i went to a a church out near the airport a place called castorfin um st thomas's and then when i graduated i stayed on the staff for a year to Mm. try it out because i thought if i'm going to go into church leadership i ought to see if i can hack it Mm -hmm. um so i tried that for a year uh then did nursing for a year um i say nursing i was an auxiliary nurse which in the hospital hierarchy Hospitals are quite hierarchically rigid. Um, I was somewhere below the bedpans uh, in the hospital hierarchy. But it was really useful. I, I had a, an interesting year in a small little cottage hospital where I was. my job was to make the teas and coffees and wheel them round and clean up the patients and take them mm. to theatre and things. Mm. And it was um, an interesting year. Yeah, yeah. Taught me I didn't want to be a medic. Yes, yes. I, I, I learned that fairly early well. Um, and something which they say uh, doctors sometimes have in common with, with pastors is that the job's fine, it's just the people. <laughs> I, uh, I was working at uh, Imperial College for a season and I was having to write to various people who were uh, very senior in the, in the hierarchy there. And Imperial College, of course, is associated with a lot of medical people. And it was a bit peculiar when you'd write an email to someone and you get an email back from their secretary. No, he's operating at that time. He can't meet anything. Yep. So it's so rare that you talk to someone and say, no, at three, I'll be cutting someone open. And, uh, and so but I can see you at 345. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oof, dear. It's a little squeamish moment there. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, Chris, I would, if I use, use the term creative, you're, you are a, you're someone who would put down your own creativity in terms of your ability to paint and so on. But is this something where you see a path where you've seen, oh, I started with, was there someone who inspired you into doing, as you say, you enjoy words, you enjoy, you're a creative thinking and... Uh... You're picking this up, then. you're picking <laughs> this up. So I've always enjoyed, um, I've always enjoyed looking at paintings and the visual arts and reading and, and writing and those sorts of things. And I did a, 
I did art at school like anybody, then stopped it. And I think we were early days into our marriage. And my wife said to me, you do enjoy this. Why don't you go and do something with this painting thing that you keep talking about? And there was a little art thing done locally in a local sports hall. And I went along not knowing anything. Wonderful woman called Shana. She saw me pick up a piece of paper and a pencil not know what I was doing at all, snatched the pencil out of my hand, gave me a twig and a bottle of ink and said, there you go, you can't draw a straight line with that. And just let me loose with doodling on a piece of paper with a twig dipped in a bottle of ink. And suddenly that unlocked being able to be loose and free. Um, And it's really quite hard to describe. I can't talk when I do it. It's not words. And to do something which isn't words is really liberating mm. Mm. there's a something about sabbath in it have you ever thought in those terms there's something about this doesn't have any other purpose but it's rest is good for me it's like some of the lungs it's, of my soul there's a there's certainly a bit of rest and recreation and i think for someone like me whose day job is leading a church and words to realize that god in his creativity has allowed us to live in a beautiful world that he created by his word. That's so true. That we're allowed to enjoy it and relish it whilst realising that it's temporary and passing. But what he's got in store for us is so amazingly more gorgeous than what he's what we've seen so far. It's worth getting the hang of how we describe beauty. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And, and appreciate and enjoy it. It illustrates what he's like. Yeah. <laughs> that he says, yeah, this is passing, but I can't help but make it really beautiful. That's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> and the bits which are most beautiful, really, they kind of make your soul have a deep breath and go, ah. And it's the stuff which is incidental. Um, you know, if you if you grind some fresh coffee beans, put them in a, a French press or a cafetiere, you add some boiling water and it comes to the top and you just stand there and watch the bubbles. <laughs> uh, and the bubbles change colour. Yes. They get darker over the next minute. As the, as the gases are released. And there's no reason why bubbles have to be pretty. But they're delightful. They just do their stuff. And it smells nice too. Yes. And tastes so good. Excellent. Now, Chris, we're sitting in a, in a city which has seen outstanding uh, gospel breakthroughs. With it. We're within walking distance of, uh, of places where the things happened, where believers changed the world. And this is not news to you. Have there been people who have been particularly inspiring to you in your walk? Yes, there have been. Um, I think above all, it was John Stott. John uh, led All Souls Langham Place. He had a a writing ministry, a a preaching ministry, but his careful attention to the Bible and what it said and then making it powerfully relevant. John's been the sort of, the, the mastermind that I aspire to be like. I cut my cloth to his to his measure, I guess. Uh, Billy Graham, hmm. I remember vividly getting hold of a biography of his in a secondhand bookshop. It's the only time when I've got up at four in the morning to finish a book because I was so excited wow. to see what God was doing. Was Billy it the Pollock? Graham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Pollock. And later on, um, uh, when he sold his books, I managed to pick up some of his books signed by him. Wow. Um, his own books? Billy, yeah. You know, when you say the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, uh, I'm increasingly saying here, please, right here, right now. What we need is that breakthrough of God's kingdom that previous generations have seen. You, you mentioned 
Whitfield, I mentioned Billy Graham, those, those kind of people where you think beyond the wit of an individual person planning or it, this is not something you do with blueprints or diaries or whatever, but God does something sovereign. Hmm. And there is there's personal renewal, there is corporate revival, there is cultural repentance and change. Um, and you can't engineer that, you can't plan that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just long for God to do something sovereign in our day. Yes. But previous generations have seen, and other parts of the world see now. Yeah, yeah. But fascinating that you're, you're describing something that is interesting, that the fellows who have seen it, characters like Spurgeon and Whitfield and so on, they would say, Spurgeon talks in terms of, you know, I can't change a soul. I can't save a guy. And he says, and it would be as, and imagine actually engineering a revival. He says, you'd be just as likely to engineer a revival as you would to whirl the stars around. Well, that's right. And I think you know, being biblically honest and saying, what I, when I invite someone to become a Christian, when I lay out the gospel and say, no, well, what do you make of it? Um, the, biblically, the task is to raise the dead at that point. Well, that's mm. beyond my capacity. Mm-hmm. I can construct an okay talk and I can tell a, I can tell a joke if I need to to make it light. And I can sort of lay it out as clearly as I can. But I can't raise the dead. Mm. I can't make the blind see. I can't make the deaf hear. Mm. I, mm. Which, you know, that, that spiritual language for what is going on in the heart mm. when someone becomes a Christian. Mm. That has to be God's work. Yes. We can't do that. And when it happens at not just an individual level, but starts to be a a group or a subculture or <laughs> a family or a, that, and when it, catches in inverted commas that's not something we can begin to this is it we can't arrange it but on the other hand this is an interesting thing there is there are resonances when it happens which are which have to do with cogency by which i mean when god does a work it's not so random as to be chaotic there's something beautiful in it for example you will probably have seen this kind of thing happen where someone gets converted out of a a, a horrifying situation in their personal life and then you tend to find people around them sometimes get converted Mm. and you start to see something that looks well this is this looks like an like organic this looks like growth this looks like life and you think that's interesting because i know the guy who i know the god who runs plants and who runs organic life and in that sense yes we cannot make it happen and yet when we watch it we see it has it has resonances with the god whom we see in that's right and i I think as pastors what we're trying to do is we're we're trying to put in place the disciplines in every christian life which is kind of laying the kindling for when god sends the fire Mm. so this is why we teach people how to pray teach people to read their bibles um i say to the kids team on Sunday, the reason you look after that two-year-old is that two-year-old might be the next Billy Graham. Mm. So let's treat every two-year-old as if they're the next potential Billy Graham. Let's train them and pray for them and and raise them with that kind of expectation. We may not see it, but we may be laying the kindling for what happens in 50 years' time. Superb, yeah, kindling, that's right. And so at no point are you saying to someone, so therefore don't bother with Luke. You say, no, 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 that's kindling. And you never, say, you never say, and don't read Paul, don't read John. No, because that's kindling. That's, that's where right. you get the kindling. And it will be when God comes to a person, that's what he'll use. That's what he yeah. So I'm laying it out there. Laying it's like a, Rico Tice, I asked him his, uh, who his, one of his heroes was. He said, John Chapman, who taught him. Yep. He said, you don't convert people. You, your job is to tell the gospel. And in fact, Stott said, evangelism isn't converting people. It's preaching the gospel faithfully. God right. converts people. 
That's right. Just striking. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you ever meet or talk with John Stott at all? Uh, yeah, I'm, I had a privilege of meeting with him several times. He uh, was the editor of the first book I got out there. So, um, yeah, that was terrifying. I, <laughs> through a force of circumstances, which I wasn't expecting, he ended up editing something which I had submitted. And I, I got back my manuscript covered in red pen <laughs> and it was worse than getting it back from your english teacher oh, it gosh. really was when when uncle john questions your sentence structure and says do you really mean that word is that exactly the word you mean uh-huh. is there not a better one ah <laughs> <laughs> oh! yeah. it was embarrassing it was awful yes. lovely guy lovely guy oh lovely so and and uh, billy graham also has associations with uh, with all souls he used to show up there and he was yeah, friends right. with john stott friends with john stott and then richard buse who helped organize some of Billy Graham's later London campaigns. He said, I, I know Billy's secret because he went in, he was knocked on a, on Billy's door one day, went in and Billy Graham was flat on the floor with his arms out praying. Wow. About half an hour before he was due to preach. And he was, it was just a position of absolute dependence. Wow. I can't do anything. I can't wow. do anything. Oh, that's outstanding. That's and you think funny. that's really humble, isn't it? You, you think somebody who's globally known as a communicator and he realizes he's got nothing. <sighs> All he has is words. The power mm. of God is out, outside his control. I, I remember seeing Billy, Billy Graham, one of his last London things at, at Crystal Palace. And I was young and arrogant, even more arrogant than I am now. And I, I was sitting there watching him, hearing him talk. And I listened to the talk and I thought, well, that's nothing remarkable. I could do that. That's, that's just really simple. He was laying out some stuff from Proverbs and I thought, that's obvious, that's easy. And then at the end of the talk, there was this weird sound like applause that was happening around the stadium and it got louder and louder and faster and faster. And it was the seats flipping up as people stood to go to the front. Wow. And I just stood there thinking, I couldn't do that. Oh, dear. I couldn't do that. That's strong, isn't it? It was astonishing. Yeah. But then, as you say, he didn't make it happen. He didn't make no. it happen. And he knew it. He wasn't engineering anything. Gosh, that's strong. No smoke, no... In fact, you know, the music of the Billy Graham thing was famously stodgy mm. because he, he knew the musicians he liked to work with. He knew what he was going to get on the platform behind. So it, it was not cutting-edge rock stuff. It was not cool. It was really quite straight hymns sung to a grand piano done in a very, this is how granny used to play the piano style. Mm. But so in, no flash at all. You know, it's striking. I run the Jonathan Edwards Twitter feed and I read a good deal of Edwards and about Edwards. Towards the end of his life, he essentially says, I, I wouldn't preach sinners in the hands of an angry God now because he says he realised that the lasting fruit of that was negligible by comparison with when he preached the beauty of Christ. And he he was longing for an impression on the heart, an impression on the heart of the beauty of Christ. He, he wants you to have a, a superior power of a new affection was yeah. his, whole, uh, his whole thing. He wants you to see something more beautiful. We act in line with what we consider to be surpassingly beautiful, seems to be his great, his great cry. And here's a guy who... Uh, Who's, who's famously in the word, but what comes out of it isn't just be in the word, but is, do you see him in it? Do you see him in it? There's a lasting impression of seeing Christ in it, which I thought was powerful. It's very striking to hear you 
say that. Now, Chris, what's new with you? What's new with me? Um, well, I think like everybody, where we have got the remarkable opportunity to start church all over again from first principles. I, I, I wow. said the other day to folks, you know, I feel as though our church has been dismantled brick by brick and I've got a large box of Lego blocks and <laughs> we're and shaking it, partly in the hope that something useful will emerge from it. But I also think, so we need to do stuff deliberately and carefully. We've had 18 months where we basically hit the pause button um, and we're not just hitting start, we're hitting reset. With, wow. with, um Our church council's going away on Saturday. And I just want us to sit back and say, so what have we, what have we learned? What have we lost? What have we gained as a church family over the past 18 months? Um, I, one of the things that's completely blown me away over, during lockdown is the importance of our small groups. Hmm. We had small groups. Loads of churches have got small groups. During lockdown, small groups were pretty much... What it was, yes. church. Yes. Uh, it, it was either live stream, i.e., a TV studio, and we, we, you know, we tried to engage people with Zoom and all those sorts of things. But it was either that or your small group. And mm. if you weren't in a small group, you really struggled, really struggled. Mm. So I, I have come out a huge fan, not just in theory but in practice of the small groups. Um, I have learned that. If I ever thought I was the man with the plan, I am not the man with the plan. We had a wonderful five-year vision document all put together, which we launched about nine months before lockdown. Wow, that, what a waste of paper that's turned out wow. to be. I think the undergirding vid values are still in place to bring glory to God by planting churches in partnership with others is, is the heartbeat of it. And we still want to do that. But almost every habit of what we're doing as Christians together, we lost for 18 months. I hope we don't miss how precious singing together is because we've not been able to do it. Praying together when Zoom feels very sterile, eating meals together. Mm. I hope we don't forget how much we've come to treasure those. Mm. But my my cliche for the past 18 months has become um, when anybody asks me a question, say, well, I don't know. What do you think? This is my first global pandemic, as they say. I don't know what we're doing. Mm. We'll make it up. And I've had loads of conversations with pastors, partly because being at Oak Hill, uh, there's a load of people who were my students who are out there leading churches. Church members and church leaders are tired. We all know that we're tired, but working out why we're tired is quite important. Mm. And I think we're tired because it's decision after decision after decision after decision. This Sunday, we're doing refreshments after church for the first time since lockdown. But we can't do it like we used to do it. So we've got to think back and reprocess. So how do we do coffee in a way that is COVID safe? Everything requires decision making. And you're operating as well with the knowledge that any decision you make, you might have to make again in three, four weeks time, according to slightly different rules. But discovering that I'm not immune from that. I am tired like everybody else. I'm mm. weary. And the fact that things are getting better in terms of how, you know, getting out doing stuff doesn't actually address the fact that we're still facing decision after decision after decision and it's it's tiring. Mm. It's yes. Tiring. You, you've touched on something there and I'd like to come on to your book, which is a leader has to make decisions, but you will know as well as anyone that some of those decisions are 51% decisions. Yep. I have to make a call in 
some senses, this is the least bad option. But we live in the social media age where people will hack away at the 49%. Ken Brownell said to me years ago something which has rung in my ears ever since. He said, I think a lot of young leaders do not initiate for fear of what the older leaders would say. And I think that is so significant because younger leaders don't want to be unorthodox. We want to be sound. What's orthodoxy? The former generation. So what would they do? And you find that shouldn't be the standard of uh, necessarily of orthodoxy, what they did. It's, uh, but sometimes a decision, decisions aren't made because of the fear of the 49. Yeah, no, that may well be true. I think, yes, there is always a problem of what will the older generation think? What will the a previous generation have decided? Sociologically, that's always a problem. Do you remember when Walt Disney died? The Disney Corporation was famously hobbled for about 20 years wow. because the question was, what would Walt do? Everybody was going around paralyzed. What would Walt have done? What would Walt have done? And it only broke when somebody had the guts to say he'd have done the unexpected. So mm. let's do something different. Um, now, in this in this season that we have been through, I have no template from Billy Graham or John Stott to what they would have done. Mm. We've got to make this one up. So it's actually been quite a liberating season for me. Hmm. Um, uh, I have been jolted out of some of my – I was quite snooty about taking church online. I, you know, I, I could see tele-evangelists and think I never want to. Mm. do that kind of nonsense well guess what's happened to me over the past mm. 18 months mm-hmm. uh and i've had to decide fairly rapidly am i comfortable with preaching online to a camera am i comfortable uh with asking people to give online mm. how can i do it in a way which which is with integrity because the alternate is that we don't ask people to give and support the ministry of the church that they're part of am i happy that somebody thinks they're part of the church even though they live in in Scotland or Switzerland, mm. are they part of the church? Mm. Um, because now our, some of our small groups are online. They're going to stay online. So you could join a small group from Switzerland or Scotland. Am I comfortable with that? There is no template handy from a previous generation to resolve those questions. Mm. Um, so we, we've had to think fast and hard. Now, there are some very clearly opinionated folk over there, both on the yes, you should do it, it's fine, and the no, you mustn't. I think most of us are somewhere in a in a foggy middle. And when we think about, so how do we do the Lord's Supper? Can we do that over Zoom? Yes, no, maybe. What do we lose? Um, we've had to face those questions as church leaders, uh, certainly across the country and in many cases globally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there is no, there is has been no template, which I found quite liberating, yeah, exhausting. But no, I'm an adapter, not a creator. So I, I love seeing what other people are doing and adapt it. Wow! And there hasn't been anybody doing it. We're all we've all been doing it at the same time. Yes, but this is what makes your book. But uh, as you, funny enough, you called it the gift, and it, uh, presumably about the gift of leadership. But the but it is a gift also for our time because there have been people who have as I started the podcast by saying there have been uh, people who have written uh, books of techniques on how to lead and you're saying i am proposing a way which i'm finding in the text and through the experience of trying to lead through the text yeah that's right so if you i mean you've kindly started off with romans 12 which is really important fascinating passage which looks at the language of gifts and then goes on to look about how we serve one another with our gifts so gifts which are individually planted i have one gift you have another gift 
uh, are there to serve each other. They're in a body context. It's a yes. brilliant analysis in Romans 12. Um, two gifts are, are listed there, particular attention for me. One is the gift of teaching mm-hmm. and the other is the gift of leadership, mm-hmm. assuming that means roughly what we think it means today, which it probably does. Now, that's really helpful because it means that there are some people who've got the gift of teaching but couldn't lead a bag of toffees. Mm-hmm. And I know people who run really, really brilliant Bible study groups, but you'd never ask them to organize a church weekend away because it would fall apart. Um, I know people who are really good at organizing things. They've got the gift of leadership. But when you, they stand up in front of a crowd of people, they go to pieces. So Romans 12 lists both those gifts separately. That's great. We've got people with the gift of leadership and people with the gift of teaching. When you then turn to uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, two of the pastoral epistles, as they're called, you'll find that the pastor has expected to have two gifts, able to teach and able to manage or lead. Now, manage is a boring word for us. It means paper clips and all those sorts of things. It's actually the same word from Romans 12, translated lead. And it's as though Paul is saying that the pastor needs to have a double gifting. Now, that doesn't mean that on Sundays you teach and on Mondays you manage or lead. It means that when you preach when you handle god's word you're saying how do we obey this together not just how do you obey this individual christian how do you individual non-christian come to christ those are valid questions but how do we better obey this as a body Mm. how do we change our plans our habits our behaviors our relationships so i mean one of my standard examples you preach on a Sunday morning. I preach on a Sunday morning. Uh, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So I can talk about how issues of alcohol abuse can destroy families, individuals, and how the answer, obviously, uh, is a Christian discipleship question, not a silver bullet, but the Spirit is at work in a Christian to help them battle with alcohol. Uh, clearly identified a number of Bible passages is going to be an issue. When you meet Somebody after church that afternoon who says, Chris, that's, that's my issue. Can you pray with me? You talk it through. You're doing pastoral work one-to-one, helping them cope with alcohol through the Spirit's work. Uh, when you talk through with the youth leader how to handle the youth group who are actually quietly guzzling drinks during youth ministry, then you're into how you disciple young lives. I, <laughs> it's a true story because when I was a youth leader – um, we had a Christmas meal and we were trying to work out why it was going so very, very well. And uh, it turned out the kids were nipping off to the loo and swigging on vodka. <laughs> we, uh, it was a very jolly meal. Um, uh, when you talk to someone whose husband is an alcoholic, but they're not, you realise that issues of what they call codependency are real. You can have your life wrecked by alcohol while you yourself are teetotal. Because you're married to somebody, you've got a kid who's an alcoholic and they're wrecking your home, your family, your finances, everything. When you then sit down with the elders on a Monday night and you say, well, look, the Bible says alcohol abuse is, a question, is an issue. I've encountered it individually and in a group and, uh, and in counselling. How do we structure this as a church? How, how, if we're going to be honest about alcohol in church... We need to get some training. We need to find out what we need to do. Maybe we need to look at uh, a dedicated small group to help people with with recovery issues. At that point, the elders are exercising leadership. They're applying God's word to the body 
Mm. not just to an individual Christian. So that's what I'm thinking leadership is. Mm. It's when teaching and leading or managing overlap when you say it's the application of God's word to the habits and the structures and the relationships in a local church. Mm. Gosh, this is... And and you've put it in such short chapters. That was <laughs> that was by design. So I I read a lot of non Christian business books, and what strikes you when you look at them is that they're written for very busy people, hmm. uh, and they all have short chapters, punches, stories, right. uh, chapter summaries, process questions, right. bang bang bang. Yes. So I thought, what would it be like if I wrote a book? which was like that, yes. rather than the normal long-winded stuff that I tend to do. Well, that's um, very let, let, Let's do something, re- let's design it to be really easy to read, super easy to read. Right. So there was a, a fixed length that a chapter couldn't go over. Mm. And, um, uh, maybe, and stories and yes. even a joke. <laughs> I, 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 there is a joke in it. It's, it's, like, it's like Shakespeare's comedies. They, cont- they all contain one joke. Don't they? <laughs> so, there is a joke in it. So it's a funny book. Well, I, I, I laughed in the first. Uh, in, in the first, I don't know if it was the joke which I laughed at is the joke. But you do, and you set it up as uh, in terms of a chat. Friends who are used to study and they want to come in and see. Look, it's one thing to understand how to parse a Greek thing, but how do we? How do you apply this to my congregation where things are not happening as I'd expected and I expected different things or more to happen and so on? And I think that's also – it shows your – you would probably not call it creative. It shows your adaptable side. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm happy to say that I was being creative with the words. I was – I mean I, I've written a few books before and this was the most self-conscious mm-hmm. in its writing process where I really have thought hard about how the words work and right. how the chapters work. Well, they, yes, because you're applying them straight to, straight to hearts and lives and that's so close to your home, all your priorities. Um, so so the book, uh, The Gift, published by IVP, is uh, is now available and it's called The Gift by Chris Green. It's called The Gift, the book. It's called The Gift. That's what yes. it's called. As simple as that. <laughs> now, uh, just as we come to a close, I'd be interested to hear, and this sounds grandiose, but I'd be interested to hear what would your advice be to people who are listening to this, as broad as you like. Oh, that's, that's an impossible question, isn't it? <laughs> um, deep down, there's a little song that we were taught when when I was a kid. Read your Bible, pray every day if you want to grow. Hmm. It's just that, to be honest. Hmm. Read your Bible, pray every day. And there's no way that we could have prepared for the last two years. There's no way we could have rehearsed it, made the decisions, no way we could have shored up a repository of wisdom to get us through. What's got us through, because God knew this was going to be happening, he designed the Bible in part with a global pandemic in mind. He Hmm. knew that everything we needed to get us through the last 18 months was contained in the Scriptures. Amen. So, read your Bible, pray every day. That's great. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful to have this time with you, Chris. Thank you so much for coming and seeing us. And uh, The Gift by Chris Green. (laughs) (laughs) For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.